For even when we were with you, we commanded you this. If anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. For we hear that there are some who walk among you in a disorderly manner, not working at all, but are busybodies. Now those who are such we command and exhort through our Lord Jesus Christ that they work in quietness and eat their own bread. But as for you, brethren, do not grow weary in doing good. And if anyone does not obey our word in this epistle, note that person and do not keep company with him that he may be ashamed. Yet do not count him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. Let's begin with prayer. Heavenly Father, as we read your word this morning, may your Holy Spirit enlighten our hearts and minds. May you soften our hearts to be receptive to these words. And may we feel conviction and a desire to want to follow you more. We pray in your name. Amen. Amen. So Paul here, he is warning the church in Thessalonica or the Thessalonian church. He's warning them against idleness. He's saying to them, work diligently and enjoy the fruits of your labor. But how do we define what idleness is? It's not a word that we use too often. What does it mean to be idle? Well, here are a few definitions. Merriam-Webster defines it as a, a state of inaction or inactivity. That's quite a good definition. Oxford says it's laziness and, once again, a state of inaction or activity or an inclination not to do work or engage in activities. Now, my personal definition of idleness is this. Anyone twiddling their thumbs? <laughs> Immediately when I think of idleness, I think of someone doing this. They've got nothing better to do than just twiddle their thumbs. But what is the biblical definition of idleness? The biblical definition does include all of these ideas. It includes this idea of laziness. It includes the, the concept of inaction and inactivity um, and a, a desire to not do anything. Twiddling the thumbs, perhaps doesn't use those words, but it incorporates all these ideas, but it also adds a spiritual element, which those other definitions don't have. And the spiritual element is this. Idleness is not sinful just because it is laziness, but because it is wandering away from God's plan for you. God has an intended plan for each of our lives, And in fact, he has a plan for each of our days. And when we become idle or we become distracted, we begin to wander off the path that God has intended for us. Idleness, some other good words is it's being aimless, drifting around wherever. There's no purpose to someone who is idle. There's no intentionality to anything that they do. They just drift around wherever they please. But God says that he has a purpose for your life. And so to be idle and aimless is actually to reject the purpose that God has placed onto your life. Purpose is intentionality. And idleness is having no intentions or plans whatsoever. To be idle also implies that there is nothing worth your time to do. If you are idle... If you're idle, you're you're saying that there's nothing better for you to do at this moment. So you might as well twiddle your thumbs. And yet we know that surely God has some purpose, something greater for us to be doing 
that is worthwhile our time. And so when we begin to twiddle our thumbs, we're saying to God, the plan that you have for me is not worth my time to take out of my day to follow through with. So this morning we're going to look at three areas in which we can be idle. The mouth, the eyes, and the mind. And how these cause us to wander off God's plans for our lives, but also how we can prevent ourselves from being idle and instead follow the plan, the purpose that God has for us. So let's begin in 1 Timothy chapter 5. 1 Timothy chapter 5, just across from 1 Thessalonians. Once again, Paul writing to another church. 1 uh, Timothy chapter 5. And uh, on the screen, I've got a visual representation for how I would see idleness. We have ourselves, God's purpose going in one direction, and idleness is whenever we wander off that path. We decide to twiddle our thumbs and do something other than what God has called us to. So the first we're looking at is idleness of the mouth in 1 Timothy 5. And we'll begin in uh, verse 11. Paul writes to Timothy, but refuse the younger widows. What does he mean by refuse the younger widows? Well, in the church that he's writing to, the church of Ephesus, there were older widows and younger widows. And the younger widows were taking all the offerings from the offering basket for themselves. And they weren't leaving any for the elderly widows. Now, it was less likely that the older widows were going to remarry again and regain that type of financial security. And so... The younger widows, they have a chance to start a new family, marry again. And so Paul's saying, look, when the younger widows come and they want to take from the offering basket, don't don't give it to them. Prioritize the older widows. But let's see what else is happening in the church of Ephesus. So refuse the younger widows, for when they have begun to grow wanton against Christ, they desire to marry, having condemnation because they cast off their first faith. Is Paul saying that these young widows should not remarry? No. In fact, in a few verses, he's going to tell them they should marry. But what he's saying is that they're wanting to marry not for the right purposes. They're not pure intentions. These widows, they've got nothing to do with their time. They're twiddling their thumbs. They're looking for something to do. And so it sounds as though they're wanting to get married for the sake of getting married. There's no intentionality behind it. There's no purpose Inherent in this marriage. And in fact, in wanting to remarry, he says that they've abandoned their faith in Christ. If they were in Christ, their desire to remarry would be of pure intention, but they've left Christ and now they're just looking for something to fill up their time with. Let's continue reading. Verse 13. He says, These younger widows, besides, they learn to be idle, wandering from house to house. And not only idle, but also gossips and busybodies, saying things which they ought not. I love how Paul uses the word wandering. They're just driftlessly aiming, going from house to house. They have nothing better to do with their time. And so they're going around saying things that they shouldn't be. Their mouths are, their mouths are idle. They're not using their time wisely. And how are they wandering? They're going door to door gossiping, trying to find out the neighborhood gossip. I find that funny when we try and reach out to people, we often go door knocking, right? (laughs) These ladies are going door knocking, but 
They're not preaching the gospel, they're gossiping about what so-and-so is doing. There could be someone behind that door hungering and thirsting for the gospel and they're never going to hear it because they're going to hear some nonsense, useless information instead. Verse 14 and 15. What does Paul say is the antidote to an idle mouth, a mouth that is spending its time gossiping rather than proclaiming the gospel? He says, Therefore, I desire that the younger widows marry, bear children, manage the house, and give no opportunity to the adversary to speak reproachfully. For some have already turned aside after Satan. Now, when we read this with 21st century glasses, we can sometimes read this text and go, well, this is a purely agendered issue. Paul's writing to some young ladies, and we leave it at that. But the sin of gossip is not gender-specific. It's not gender-exclusive. Here we're reading an example of some young women who have a problem with gossip, but men and women gossip all the time. We have this stereotype that men don't gossip, but men are pretty good gossips. They might not talk about the same things, but men do gossip a lot. So we shouldn't read this as though it's just for these young ladies. And in fact, if I were Paul and I were writing to some widowers, some young gentlemen who have this problem, I'd probably write the exact same thing. I'd say to the young men, marry, raise children, and manage your house. Or in other words, he's saying, be occupied with something. Have some purpose to your life. Have some purpose to your day. When you're married, when you have children, or when you have a job, you have some purpose to your day, something to occupy your time. And notice what he says. In occupying your time, you give no opportunity to the adversary, Satan, to speak reproachfully. For some have already turned aside after Satan. So Paul is explicit in telling us that Satan looks for any opportunity he can. And when he sees us idle and twiddling our thumbs and we've got nothing better to do, that's when Satan comes in and tries to tempt us. And specifically in this one, tries to tempt us to make our idle mouths say things which they shouldn't. Gossip about people rather than preach the gospel. But why does gossip lead to people leaving the faith? Why would being a gossip make you lose your faith in God? I think it's because gossip instills almost a pharisaical attitude in us. When we gossip about other people, we we have this sense of self-righteousness. We have this sense of self-entitlement. And we like to gossip because it makes us feel better about our, our lives in comparison to other people. A perfect example of this is you, pretty much any reality TV show. Reality TV always picks like the worst of the worst people and you look at them and you go, man, at least my life isn't as bad as theirs. Or you go, at least I'm not as bad a person as they are. That's really what gossip is. It's we look down at people, we want to hear how bad everyone else's lives are so we can feel a bit better about ourselves. Well, whew, at least I'm not as bad as how this person has it. But that puffs us up, it makes us proud, and it makes us look down on others. It makes us judgmental. And when a church is all about selflessness and helping others, well, a pharisaical attitude just does not fit in that context. And so sadly, Paul is correct. When our mouths are idle and when we begin to gossip instead of doing what we should, it destroys our spiritual walk and completely sidetracks us from God's purpose. God's purpose being that we use our mouths to speak life into people, 
not to bring them down, not to destroy others, but to speak words of life into others. And so gossip is one way in which we wander from God's purpose and we go off the track. The second is the eyes. How do our eyes become idle? Let's go to 2 Samuel chapter 11. This is a perfect example. 2 Samuel chapter 11. And this is during the rule of King David. King David, who we spoke of in our lesson this morning. One of the great kings in Jewish history. 2 Samuel chapter 11. And just read verse 1 together. It happened in the spring of the year... At the time when kings go out to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all of Israel. They destroyed the people of Ammon. They besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. So how does the verse begin? It was the time when the kings do what? Go out to war. And where's David? Back at home. The purpose for David's life that God had given to him was that he be a good ruler and a good king. And part of that was going and defending the country, being on the front lines of battle, leading your people into war. But David decides to neglect the purpose that God had placed on his life and instead says, well, I'll just stay at home. I'll send someone else to do my job for me. He sends his general Joab. He says, you go, you go do it for me. And so David is idle. He's got nothing better to do at the moment. He's twiddling his thumbs back at home. He should be out in the front line as a king, but instead he's twiddling his thumbs. And because of this idleness, Satan has a perfect opportunity to tempt David. Verse 2. David, he's wandering around the palace, got nothing better to do. And it says, Then it happened one evening that David arose from his bed. He walked on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof, he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful to behold. Now, if David had been on the front lines of battle, he wouldn't have had the opportunity to let his eyes wander. And we know the story continues. He he takes this woman, Bathsheba, for himself. He kills Bathsheba's husband mercilessly so that she can be his, and he can tie up all the loose ends, cover up his sin. And one of his children dies at the end of the story. All because David's eyes just couldn't help but wander around. And they would, he would not have had the opportunity to do that had he been out in the front line doing what he should have been, fulfilling his purpose as the king. And today that, that wandering of the eyes is even more readily accessible than it was in David's time. David had to go on the highest roof of the highest palace in the kingdom to try and spy on someone. All of us today have to, you know, work on computers. We work on a computer and two clicks away is as many Bathshebas as you want. Idleness, it manufactures these opportunities for our eyes to wander to places where they shouldn't. Idleness also appeals to envy. Envy is very similar to lust. Lust is Lusting after someone who doesn't belong to you. Envy is wanting something that doesn't belong to you. They're actually very similar, just with slightly different connotations. And our eyes wander a lot as well when we envy. We look at other people 
and we begin to feel this jealousy inside. Oh, man, that person's had such a better life. Man, I wish I had that house. Oh, man, you know, I wish I had those nice kids or whatever the case may be. We look at other people's lives and we, we feel this envy. We want something that doesn't belong to us. And it's all because our eyes begin to wander. So what is the solution to wandering eyes? Once again, like Paul says to the wandering mouths in the church, be occupied. Occupy yourself. Now notice I haven't said be busy. Busyness we often associate with going over the top. It's, it's almost workaholism. Busyness is also a sin. It's just the opposite side of the coin of idleness. And in fact, they go hand in hand. When we overwork and when we, we are so passionate about being busy all the time, we begin to treat busyness as an idol. or We begin to treat our jobs um, as something to be worshipped. We neglect time with God. We neglect time with our family. We neglect the time that we need to take for ourselves. And we begin to almost kill ourselves because of overexhaustion. So busyness is not the solution to idleness. Busyness just exhausts you. But being occupied, having something to do with your time and doing it well, that's a proper solution. I said as well, busyness and idleness go hand in hand. And I think the reason is when we overwork, when we're over busy, and we get home and we crash, what do we immediately fall into? Idleness. We crash and we just go, oh, I want to do nothing. And that's when we're most susceptible. When we're most exhausted, that's when our willpower is at its lowest. That's when we're most susceptible to our mind or our eyes or our mouth wandering around where it shouldn't. So... With our schedules, we should make sure to have something to do in our schedules each day, but don't overcram it. Overworking just leads to idleness. And resting is very different from being idle as well. God told his people, he instructs us to rest. But rest is different from idle because rest has a purpose. We rest to spend time with God. We rest to spend time with our family. We rest to spend time with our church family, or we rest just by ourselves for the purpose of recharging ourselves to continue doing the purpose that God has for us. So rest has a purpose behind it. It has intentionality behind it, but idleness doesn't. Idleness is just filling in time. So God is very concerned with us being occupied, not overworking, not being idle, being occupied with our time, but also having Rest, And of course, we have the Sabbath day to prove how much God cares about rest. So we can learn about, we can learn from the life of David that the idleness of the eyes is not a temptation. Now, is a temptation where we can wander off if we're not occupied, but also taking time for adequate rest. And finally, the idleness of the mind. Let's turn to Ephesians chapter 4. Now, of course, our mind can idle into all sorts of different areas. They can wander back and forth. So there are many different ways that you could um, look at this concept. But I just want to look at one example, which is how often our minds, when left idle, very quickly fall into the trap of anger. 
Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26. Paul writes to the Ephesian church, Be angry and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. What are the, where are the places where we most often mull over things that we're angry? It's usually when we have a, we have a long piece of time that we have nothing better to do, isn't it? Usually it's things like maybe you're on a long car drive and you're at the steering wheel muttering under our breaths. Another place is right before we go to bed at night and we've got nothing better to do. We're trying to go to sleep. And what fills our mind? Man, I can't believe that person said that to me today. Who's ever replayed a conversation in their head and in replaying it, they've come up with a comeback, you know? Oh, I should have said that. Oh, that would have been really good if I told them what's what. And what do we say sometimes when someone's angry? They're stewing in their anger. It's this idea that it's taking a long time. They're, they're really preoccupied by it. And anger is inherently self-destructive. It's like a hot coal. You pull out a hot coal from a fire. You can maybe hold that in your hand for a second or two. But if you keep holding on to it, it's going to burn really badly. You've got to let it go. Anger is very similar. The longer you hold on to anger the more pain it actually causes the one holding on to it. And anger, it never stays as merely resentment or bitterness. Anger always wants to find a way to act out something. It, it always desires action. And so we begin to plan oh, what we're going to say to that person or how we're going to get revenge or what thing we're going to do just to annoy or aggravate them. We begin to, to plot and scheme because anger never wants to just stew in that anger. It wants to find a way to let it out. It wants an action to find a way to get back. And anger always consumes a person. It consumes our time. Because how can we focus on anything else when all we can think of is we're stewing over this event that has happened to us? And so when we're stewing over anger and we're thinking about this sole thing... How, we how is it possible at all for us to think about what God wants us to do? And the purpose, again, the purpose that God has designed for us. Notice as well that Paul says, Do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. Once again, it's this idea that Satan will take any opportunity he can to wriggle his way in. If he sees us stewing in our anger, idly our mind is just going over and over in our minds about this anger. Satan sees that opportunity, he tries to get in as quick as possible. But in letting go of that anger, we do not give Satan the opportunity to try and come in. So what are the solutions to idleness? We've looked at idleness of the mouth, idleness of our eyes, and idleness of the mind. But how do we solve these things? Well, we've already spoken of some of them. And we'll just go over them again. First, I would say plan your day in advance. And each of these solutions, we merely have to look at the life of Jesus to see how he lived his life. So Jesus, did Jesus plan his day in advance? I'd say very much so. He had a roadmap of where he would go next. He'd go from Samaria. He knew how long he'd spend in Samaria. Then he'd go to this town, then this town. Jesus knew his mission. He knew the purpose that God had for him, and he stuck to it. He knew on this day, he's going to go meet this person. 
On this day, he's going to meet the woman at the well. On this day, he's going to you know, heal this person. And the reason he knew is because he'd spend every morning in prayer asking God to reveal to him, what is it you want for me to do today? So the second thing, commit your day to God. Jesus spent time in prayer every morning asking that God's will would be done in his life. When we wake up, we should do the same. Commit everything that we have planned to God. And perhaps God wants to do something different than what we've planned. That'll always be the better option, following God's purpose. So plan your day in advance. Have some purpose, have some intentionality to what you're going to do. And then commit that day to God when that day comes. Number three, be occupied. Jesus was always moving from one place to the other to help people. If you look in the Gospel of Mark, just the very first chapter, over and over and over again, Mark says that Jesus went from one place to the other immediately. He uses the word almost about 20 times just in one chapter, telling us that Jesus immediately goes from here to the next. He doesn't take time. He doesn't ever twiddle his thumbs. He finishes here and then he goes somewhere else because he knows that he needs to fulfill his ministry. Be occupied. Fourthly, rest, don't overwork. Jesus, of course, rested on the Sabbath day. He is our example for keeping the Sabbath as well. And rest, again, is intentionally taking aside time. Intentionally take aside time to recharge so that you can further fulfill the purpose that God has placed on your life. And in doing so, by not overworking ourselves, we also don't give the opportunity for us to slip into idleness because we're so tired. And fifth, accountability. If you think about it, Jesus traveled with 12, at least 12 of his disciples at all times. Jesus was always with someone. We too should surround ourselves with other people. It's very difficult to sin when there are other people present. Often these times of idleness are when we're alone and we have nothing better to do. But when we're with other people, it's very difficult to try and sin. So I believe if that we follow these biblically given principles, we can prevent our mouths, our eyes, and our minds from becoming idle and wandering away from the purpose that God has given to us. And instead, we can stay focused on what he intends for our lives. Finally, as we conclude this morning, I want to ask one final question. Are you being spiritually idle? In your personal spiritual life, are you wandering away from God's purpose? Of course, we've given some examples of areas in our life where we we stumble and we fall. But is the entirety of your life a wandering away from God's purpose? Are you yet to have given your life to God? And are you instead wandering aimlessly in this world? Whenever we're spiritually idle, it's because we think that we must have a better purpose than the one that God has for our life. That whatever we've thought of, whatever we've created, it must be better than the purpose that God has. Otherwise, we'd do it. Otherwise, we wouldn't twiddle our thumbs. But rest assured that the purpose that God has for your life is better than anything you could ever create. Sin often feels very good in the moment. It gives a momentary sense of pleasure. But when we wander off that path, 
And that moment finishes, we realize how entrapped we are. We realize that our actions have been self-destructive. Our eternal salvation can only be found in the following of God's purpose. And so I implore you today to not be turned off the path that God has put before you. Do not be idle and give opportunity for Satan to tempt or distract you in any other direction. If you're not on the purpose, if you're not on the path of God's purpose this morning, I plead with you, choose to walk on that path. Choose to follow God's purpose in your life. Give your life to him because you have nothing to lose and eternity to gain.